Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about the deepest values of the people who shape our public conversation and what they've learned about engaging with people different from them. Every episode I talk to someone with some kind of public voice and I ask them what they hold sacred and what ideas have formed them. The aim is both for me to have a proper chat with someone interesting but also to help us remember that there are complex feeling individuals behind the positions in our fractious public conversation. My hope is that by really listening in a non-adversarial way to a wide range of people with all kinds of differing views on politics, religion and everything else, we can grow in empathy and be more able to contribute to a healthier, more human common life. As always, if you can rate, review or just publicly rave about the podcast, it really does help us out a lot. In this episode, you'll hear an interview I did with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Sachs is, of course, an international religious leader, moral philosopher and author. He was the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth for 22 years and has written books that have been formative for me and many others, including The Dignity of Difference and Not in God's Name. His most recent book is called Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times. We spoke about the twin threads of his life in religious leadership and academic moral philosophy and how those two things have worked together, what his own religious practice looks like, and why the Holocaust makes him doubt humans, but not God. I really hope you enjoy listening. Rabbi Sex, I'm just going to kick off with the big, meaty, in the deep end question about what you hold sacred. And a bit of background to this is I came across it in um, kind of social anthropology, in uh, conflict resolution, that this idea that People are not just rational actors, that you can't just buy your way out of conflict. That There are some things that people hold sacred, like land or family. Uh, and they're not always religious principles, often they're, you know, equality or various other things. Although I edit myself, I'm not sure equality and religion are, are, are opposed, but uh, they don't have to be religious. And lots of people hold things sacred from a non-religious perspective. It's really just trying to get at your deepest principles and the things that drive you did anything come to mind? What kind of bubbles up for you as a possible thing that you hold sacred? Three things. Number one, compassion. To my mind, that is the key religious value. There's this wonderful word in the Bible, chesed, for which there was no English equivalent. And Tyndale, translating the Bible in 1535, devised this compound word, loving kindness, which is what I call love as deed. And I see that as absolutely fundamental to the Bible and absolutely fundamental to what I see as the initial starting axiom of the Bible, which is that God creates human beings and endows each of them with his image and likeness, meaning that people are sacred. And that just as God creates humanity out of love, so we have to relate to humanity out of love, love as deed. The second thing was a very personal one, and that is intellectual integrity. And let me explain why. Uh, when I was quite young, starting around the age of 15, I started speaking in public, politically in those days. And I discovered that I had a sort of knack for it, and I could persuade crowds of all sorts of stuff. It could be true, it could be false, I could move them to love, I could move them to hate, I could move them to feeling threatened and persecuted. And it suddenly struck me that this is one of the most dangerous gifts it is possible to have. You can use it for good, but you can use it for bad. That's what the Greeks used to call rhetoric. 
And that's why, really, I became a philosopher. Philosophy is the search for truth, not for persuasion. And that's really why I write books. Because when I'm speaking from a pulpit or a lectern or what have you, or on the stage at TED, you don't have any way of checking in the moment, am I saying what's true or false? But when I write a book, you can take that away into your private study, check my references. And get wise counsel. <laughs> and, and, and challenge it. And that, to me, is what drives me. Um, you know, politics is about persuasion. And I prefer truth to persuasion. So it's that intellectual integrity. And third is the thing that I've sort of dedicated my life to, which is communicating across boundaries. Speaking to people whose views are radically opposed to your own. And much more importantly, listening to people whose views are radically opposed to your own. So, you know, I'm my postgraduate my doctoral supervisor was the late Bernard Williams, who was a lapsed Catholic and profoundly atheist. And I was very religious. And, you know, I learned from him what it is to have respectful listening. And I tried to pay it forward, if you like, by trying to have friendly conversations with uh, Richard Dawkins, for whom I have a great deal of fondness, and in America, Stephen Pinker, for whom I have an equal fondness. So, to my mind, talking across boundaries between believers and atheists, Jews and Christians, Jews and Hindus, you name it, people across political boundaries, that for me is number three. Thank you. We're going to wind back a bit because I have a conviction and I, uh, from reading your work, I'm pretty sure I sh you share it, that uh, narrative is an important thing and locating ourselves in a story, whether personal or communal, is part of how our identities form and perhaps how we reach the things that we hold sacred. So I'd love you to tell me a bit about your childhood and particularly if there were any really formative ideas, whether they were political or philosophical or religious. What, what shaped the young Jonathan? Did I have any formative ideas in childhood? Absolutely none. But I, what I can tell you is my story. And here is the story. Um, I'm the eldest of four boys. Uh, my late father came to Britain as a refugee from Poland as a young child. Uh, his family was very poor. He had to leave school at the age of 14 to help support the family. My mother was born in Britain, but her family came from elsewhere, from Russia, my grandmother, and from Israel, my grandfather. And she left school at the age of 16 because in those days, uh, Jewish women of a certain kind of orthodoxy did not carry on studying. It was considered unfeminine or whatever. Um, my father always missed having an education. My mother always missed having an education. And so we didn't have books floating around. It wasn't an intellectual family at all. Um, but somehow or other, I sensed that feeling among my parents at the education they wanted to have but didn't have. They didn't say anything. I could just feel it. So um, I became the first member of the family to go to university. My three brothers all followed me to the same college in Cambridge. We did reasonably well. We were really living out what my parents missed. And I think that's pretty familiar among immigrant families. Mm -hmm. You know, the first 
homeborn generation fulfills the impossible dreams of their parents. And what's your earliest memories of religion? Was it a big part of life at home? My parents were um, very respectful indeed of religion and they loved synagogue. So uh, my father always used to take me from when I was two or three years old to synagogue and my mother always uh, looked after the ladies' guild and made the little kiddish, the, the uh, reception after the service. Uh, there's a line in Psalms that we say three days, three times every day, happy are those who dwell in your house. Uh, my parents were that kind of, they were that kind of people. So I think um, although they didn't know much Jewishly and they practiced what they knew, which was not very much, nonetheless that love for religion, that sense that you walk tall because you walk with God, that communicated itself very powerfully. I'm going to ask something that I'm always aware feels feels delicate. Someone joked to me that it's uh, more intimate than asking about someone's sex life, which I'm not going to do. But I am going to do something called, you know, I sometimes call dropping the G-bomb, which is ask about God, ask about uh, a sense of the divine, because we can talk about, and importantly, and should, religious practice, religious communities, religious ideas, religious institutions. I'm really interested in how difficult it is actually to talk about individuals encounter of or experience or absence of God. Do you have a a sense in which that, that, a sense of those memories as well woven through? When did that become a presence or or indeed an absence in your life? Well, I I mean, the the most mystical experience I had was... um, in 1968, I was just, um, 1969, I think, I was just finished my degree at Cambridge. Uh, I went over to Israel to study in a seminary. Um, and the seminary itself was set in a little village five miles and two centuries from Tel Aviv, uh, a little Hasidic village. It was like uh, a little township transported bodily from 18th century Eastern Europe. And so, you know, just to breathe a slightly more expansive air, I would go on Fridays to uh, Jerusalem, um, to the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus, where you can actually sit and look down on the Temple Mount. And uh, Jerusalem stone, as you know, especially when the sun is setting, turns a very gold, red gold. And so... You can sit there or not. In one direction, you see the Temple Mount. In the other direction, you see the Judean hills. And the whole landscape was on fire. I mean, you know, you just felt surrounded by the divine presence. It was an extraordinary experience. It still sends a shiver down my spine just to think about it. Um, I've had many other mystical experiences, but that was the first one that said, wow, this is a holy city, a holy land. This is why people come here and encounter God. The much more direct experience that I have most of the time, um, I can explain by saying that the most famous line of Jewish prayer, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy. Um, I retranslated the prayer book and I retranslated that line to listen 
Israel, not here, Israel, because the text is saying something active, not passive. And so for me, part of the spiritual life, part of my spiritual life, is creating a silence in the soul in which you can hear God. Now, hearing God is a a matter of um, exposing yourself to being told this is not the right way. You know, God doesn't necessarily say things that you want to hear. Um, But I try and do that a lot. Uh, I think we're, you know, we're undersupplied with silence. Somebody asked me, uh, Timothy Ferris is kind of, guy who does self-help books and things. He wrote a book called Tribe of Mentors. He asked me, uh, what was the most spiritual possession I had? And I said, a set of noise-canceling earphones because they let you hear the music beneath the noise. And for me, faith is hearing the music beneath the noise. I once said to, uh, we were doing a program with Richard Dawkins and Andrew Marr, and I said to Richard, Richard, the trouble is you're tone deaf. You can't hear the music. And he said to me, you're right. I am tone deaf, but there is no music. That's really <laughs> stuck very, with me. It was very funny, actually. Yeah. It, that, that sense in how would he know? <laughs> but the, again and again on this podcast, when I talk, talk to people who are non-religious, who haven't had... And this is why I want to probe very gently and hopefully with great respect at that, at that sense of internal encounter with the divine, because it feels to me one of the great divides is not necessarily where we get to on morality or even on practice, but those for whom have experienced or can imagine the experience of a sense of the presence of God in the world. And this is personal for me because I, I, I went from not having that experience to having one in a very ecstatic moment. Um, and for lots of people, you know, wonderful friends of mine, atheists and non-religious people, you know, Tom Chivers and, and Andrew Copson and, and David Badil and other people I've spoken to, it is like I can see another set of colours that they've never seen. Or, And it sounds so patronising to say that, but that there is a dimension of what I would say is reality that doesn't feel accessible to some people. And it's one of my deep frustrations of how to how to bridge that divide and do it in ways that are kind and not arrogant, really. But to say, you know... Listen, as you were saying, you know, or maybe come and see if you want to. That there, there might be more. There might be music beneath the noise. Do you feel that's part of your role? Well, I, th- I think so. You know, I mean, if I can tell you a story, which is just a, an analogy, if you like, uh, my late father, a blessed memory, although he never had an education, had wonderfully. Um, sophisticated taste in classical music. And he tried very hard to get me to like it. Um, and I really didn't. So eventually, out of despair, he took me several weeks running to those performances they used to have in the Albert Hall of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Orchestra, uh, 1812 uh, Overture, with full mortar effects. In other words, they let off cannons at the top of the Albert Hall. You know, and it was stinks and bangs and stuff. And that grabbed me. You know, it grabbed me. It really did. So that that was the turning point. Now, I think my father was very wise because he realized that once I'd begun down that road, I'd eventually get down much further along that road, which I did within a couple of years. And I got to that point. 
than which there is no higher of, uh, of the late string quartets of Beethoven, where he's up in heaven. I mean, I don't know how you can listen to the C-sharp minor opus 131 and, and not feel you're in heaven with the angels there. And there are moments, of course, even in the Ninth Symphony when you're up there with the angels with very high notes. Beethoven, who'd been deaf for 20 years when he was writing this music, had, you know, traveled within himself, within his soul, um, to these extraordinary extents. But you need to start with something, the Big Bang. And some people never get that Big Bang. They never get the thing that will start them on that road of spiritual search. It's a funny insight into a father's understanding of young men <laughs> needing loud noises. And have there been moments uh, in your life that have been crises of faith, you know, times when you didn't feel like you heard the voice of God or had a sense of God's presence or wrestled with your, with your religious community, with your religious tradition? I have had a crisis of faith, but it, it was not, and I emphatically not, a crisis of faith in God. I had a decisive crisis of faith in humanity. Once I went to Auschwitz, once I really, really studied what happened in the years leading up to it, and to this day, and I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of books I've read about the Holocaust, I do not begin to understand how did this happen. And I still don't understand. I still don't understand then, and I don't understand now. Today, a government minister in Poland, today, said, and I haven't had a chance to find out in what context, that Jews shouldn't complain about the pogroms. They were good for Jews because they were natural selection in action. And this is Poland, where Auschwitz was situated. So I don't know how anyone can be a secular humanist after Auschwitz, because they have to have faith in man if they don't have faith in God. And it is that faith in man that I find completely untenable. I want to wheel back to get a sense of your, um, the twin threads of your life, really, because you've painted a picture of your childhood and this um, precocious uh, young boy with a hunger for books and a hunger for ideas, supported by his parents who might not have shared it. Um, and you went to study moral philosophy what was the what was the pull there? You'd had this sense of the power of rhetoric, the power of power, really, and the need for responsibility for it. Was that what you were seeking there, a sense of what, what does a responsible life look like, or was it a broader intellectual pull? I, I went to university to study economics. I suddenly realised that economics was a secondary subject. You know, u- utility maximisation. Well, what is utility? What What is happiness? And the second you think hard about happiness, you suddenly realize that there are two forms of happiness, hedonic happiness, happiness is pleasure, and eudaimonic happiness, happiness is meaning. Well, once you're looking for meaning, you've got to move into philosophy. So after two terms of economics, I switched to well, I need philosophy. to define these terms. <laughs> and, uh, you know, ultimate, ultimate questions. And... Um, on the one hand, I had the privilege of the most unbelievable tutors. Um, you know, Bernard Williams, as my doctoral supervisor in Cambridge, called the cleverest man in England and probably the greatest philosopher of his day. In, in Oxford, um, he sent me to study with Philippa Foote, 
who developed the whole virtue ethic and invented that thing that's become very popular now called the trolley problem or would you push the fat man off the bridge, etc. And my undergraduate tutor was the late Sir Roger Scruton. So you had three of the finest minds in the world and I was in a one-to-one relationship with them. This was thrilling. So that was the good news. The bad news is that philosophy was at an absolute blind alley. You know, it was telling us that it's all about the meaning of words. It was kind of high-class lexicography. Well, I didn't go to Cambridge to read the Oxford English Dictionary. I didn't even go to Oxford to read the dictionary. And there is no doubt that um, my three tutors all had their problems with the prevailing mood, but they had not yet thought their way out. And I thought my way out by saying, well, look, um, if I can't find the answer in, in contemporary philosophy, then let me look at the resource that's available to me as a Jew, namely our own tradition of wisdom. That's why I left philosophy at the time to start studying Jewish texts. My husband, who's a philosopher, always reminds me that philosophy comes from the love of wisdom, philosophia. Yeah. But it's not the love of knowledge. It's not the love of cleverness or the lover of the love of, um, you know, uh, that the wisdom is sometimes missing there. It, um, it, it, there wasn't a lot of wisdom floating around the philosophical world in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, there's a lot more now. But the wisdom thing is the important thing because if you actually look at wisdom literatures, you'll find that that is what connects Athens and Jerusalem. That is what connects ancient Egypt and ancient Israel. I mean, wisdom is a kind of human universal. There's quite a lot of um, people that I'm connected with who are uh, scholars who do a similar kind of um, split at different seasons in their life between academic life and um, and parish life, usually if they're in the Church of England. And it's interesting seeing the different parts of them come alive in different settings. What was your uh, favourite and your least favourite thing about being a congregational rabbi? And how do you think it's enriched your um, your academic and your ethical work? Well, my favourite thing was teaching. And rabbi means my teacher. And in Judaism, study is even more sacred than prayer. And that's, there can't be many religions about which that is true. Um, because uh, prayer in prayer, you're asking God to listen to you. And in study, you are listening to him. So prayer is, study is very sacred. And I loved that. I loved that. Um, the least favorite thing I have to say, at least on the surface, was officiating at funerals. And I had to do a lot of those because I had a very elderly congregation. The fact is, however, that I learned more from conducting funerals than I learned from moral philosophy at Oxford and Cambridge. Because what I discovered conducting funerals is what David Brooks in his uh, The Road to Character calls the difference between eulogy virtues and resume virtues. You know, you conduct a funeral, that's a eulogy. And I suddenly realized what a eulogy is. It is a kind of distillation of a community's moral values and priorities. It is an appreciation of life in terms of the way that life lived those values. And it is a way of educating all of us who are there as mourners uh, what is worth living for and what really isn't worth living for. 
So th- that was my least favourite, but it was very educational. It feels like whenever you go to a funeral, everything except the person's relationships are stripped away and you realise how much time we spend thinking about the externals compared to the identity of those that we're in community with. As they say, nobody's last words were ever, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Indeed. And one of the themes that runs through this podcast is how do we engage across difference? And it's a concern that we share. And being a chief rabbi, which you went on to be, uh, I think anyone leading any size of religious group deals with difference and conflict, (laughs) disagreement. Your role as a chief rabbi representing a particular part of the Jewish community in the UK, but with a kind of broader figurehead role. Internally, how did you learn um, what helps people bridge disagreements and differences and what causes division? Religious politics are very unpleasant. And I did not enjoy them one little bit. Um, Because um, you have to be adroit rather than um, honest it's really, really difficult. I found that problematic. Two things, though, were, were very powerful. Number one was the relationship that we built with other faiths. During my 22 years, I had a wonderfully warm and close relationship with George Carey and with Ron Williams, with, uh, among the Catholics, the late Basil Hume and Cormac Murphy O'Connor and Vincent Nichols, indeed. And all the other faiths, we, 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 were, we had friendships right down the line, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Zoroastrian, Baha'i, the works. We, we, we were good, close friends, and we worked at those friendships. And that was good. And um, I certainly found that George and Rowan, in particular, were willing to go down that road so that they would host gatherings. Of, you know, it was super. The other thing was broadcasting and writing in the national press, but certainly broadcasting, um, was a way of reaching the Jews who never come to synagogue. It was an extremely oblique way of doing so, but I suddenly discovered that um, if you had a Jew who never came to synagogue and never really had any regard for religion, but was working, let's say, in a a lawyer's office, and the guy with the de- desk next to him said, oh, I heard your chief rabbi on the radio this morning. He was quite good, you know. And, and that kind of got at them in ways they weren't expecting. So um, we found that um, speaking across difference is not difficult, but you've just got to find the right way of doing so. It always feels like a slightly odd question, and I have very little patience for the concept of self-care because I feel like it's a, usually a way to sell people wellness product, products. But I do care about um, sp- spiritual health and the way it relates to emotional intelligence. And when I speak to people who have a strong public voice, um, who are spending a lot of their life balancing on different, um, uh, on different divides, who are seeking to cross boundaries Uh, Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker um, theorist of healthy democracies, talks about the ability to hold tension. People who can tolerate and hold those tension are required. And so I'm always interested in what are the practices that help people um, sustain those roles. And I was very surprised that Justin Welby said um, fish and chips and watching the Avengers with my children. (laughs) That kind of like, what are the things that you do that just help you kind of stay grounded? You mentioned kind of contemplative prayer practices. Are there other things that um, just keep you healthy and keep you sane? Uh, Elena and I go for long walks. 
Um, Elena's always kept me sane because she's the sane one of the family. Um, and that is just beautiful. They're, those are very reflective moments when we're just talking about us, talking about children, talking about now grandchildren. Uh, and the other one is music. You name it, all the way from Eminem to, uh, to uh, I don't know, to Schoenberg, you name it. There's a funny line in your book where you talk about loving self-help books, having moved your cheese and felt the fear and done it anyway, which it's slightly yeah, surprised me. Tell me about They're those. They're terrific. They're terrific. You know, they kind of cheer you up. Yeah. <laughs> They're completely useless, but they oh. cheer you up, you know. Um, but um, no, I, I, I tend to learn a little something from all of them. You know, you never know what you are going to learn. But uh, today I was reading one about diets. You know, very interesting. You know, the Jews in Eastern Europe used to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. I don't know if you've seen. It's just come it's back. Ever so fashionable. As the 5-2 diet. You know, it's terrific. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, it's funny. He doesn't realize this, the guy who's writing the book, but he's just explaining an East European Jewish custom to me. Yes. So um, whenever you read these books, there's just a chance that someone's going to say something that's interesting. Um, and I just pick up all the, all the little hints. We can't talk about engaging across difference without talking about morality and the common good and our ability to dethrone the self or um, seek to reshape our society in ways that are less, uh, less individualised and less atomised. And there's many, many places we could go with this. But I'd love to hear, are there three things that you think people could do that would help us kind of rebuild these bonds that tie us together, that sustain us, that help us create healthy democracies and healthy communities as individuals? Yeah, number one, we have to get back to telling a national narrative. And, I, you know, I used to discuss this at length, but at their request, not at mine, uh, with John Major and with Gordon Brown when they were, each of them was prime minister, because they felt that we were losing our cohesion as a nation. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, we spoke about constructing the narrative and so on, and, you know, it would always come back somehow. I think it got sabotaged somewhere along the line. But you can't do it. Who would tell the narrative? Who would write it? And then in 2012, along comes Danny Boyle and just does it in the opening ceremony of the Olympics. It's just not that difficult. And the essence of a shared narrative is that it gets told slightly differently every single time, the way we on Passover tell the story of the exodus of going out of Egypt. There's a set text, but every family has its own take on that text. And that's been going on for over 3,000 years. And that story has kept our identity strong over the most adverse conditions and through the widest diaspora. So number one, we have to tell a story, the story that includes all of us. Um, number two, I think we have to make space in our lives for um, some kind of community service. We, I assemble the evidence here that it's just plain good for you physically and psychologically. It will strengthen your immune system. It will increase your self-reported levels of happiness. It will help you cure a disease faster than otherwise. Just go and volunteer for something. Because, you know, talking about the greater good, the common good, 
uh, is fine, but to feel it, you have to do it. And we can all build something like that into our lives. And many companies do build that into, in, into their schedule. Um, and, 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 you know, thirdly, frankly, you know, it's a, it's a kind of ability to realize that I, on my own, am a pretty sorry entity. You know, I tell the story, if I can just give you the example. Um, I do ask your listeners to do the following. We, we, when I was chief rabbi, the official residence was in St. John's Wood, just next to a certain road in St. John's Wood. I had to cross probably the world's most famous zebra crossing to get to the synagogue. The road was called Abbey Road. And the zebra crossing that I had to cross was just alongside the EMI studios, which is where the Beatles recorded their things. And this shift from we to I began in the mid-60s. And of course, the, the Beatles spanned that. And I sometimes say to people, if you want a proof of what I want visibly, just Google images, Beatles 1963. And you see four people all wearing the same suit, the same shirt, the same tie, the same haircut, the same smile. It's radiating we. And then Google images, Beatles' last photo shoot, 1969. They're all dressed differently. None is looking at the other. They're all looking miserable, and they're all wondering, why am I here? Now, you see what those four individuals were able to create as a we, and then ask what they went on to create as four independent eyes. And I don't think I would be too controversial if I said that uh, genius turned into mediocrity. And I actually did a little search here because what were their finest compositions on their own after the group? And I discovered that on most people's views, Paul McCartney, maybe I'm amazed, George Harrison, My Sweet Lord, John Lennon, Imagine. I then looked up the issued dates for those. Maybe I'm amazed, 1969. My Sweet Lord, 1970, Imagine 1971. So even their greatest work was done while the influence of togetherness was still strong. Now, if that can happen to a group, it can be the greatest group, pop group the world has ever known when it was a we, and simple mediocrities when there were four different eyes. Think of that applying to a company or a community or a country. Jonathan Sachs, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk. Hold up. 